Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you have had some good R&R family time over the last couple weeks and uh, ready for uh, 2022, whether we like it or not. And so today's episode is going to be looking back at the January 6th insurrection that was almost a year ago to the date and talking about, you know, how the prosecutions are going what the kind of political kind of policy context is around it, where the gaps are, where things need to be improved, and then just the general outlook for fascism and further right-wing violence in the United States with uh, my friend and colleague Jason Blazakis, who is the director of the Center on Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. I've had Jason on the podcast uh, before, and always a great conversation, so I thought he was the perfect guest to kind of give us the one year out uh, on, you know, all that's going on around uh, the January 6th, and, and not just obviously the insurrection, but leading up to it and since, because that was just one data point in really a multiple months long coup or, or insurrection, we get into a little of the semantics uh, in, in the discussion. But uh, I hope you enjoy it. And after uh, the interview, I'll come back with the antidote to set us off for 2022. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Jason Blazakis, and we're going to talk about everything insurrection related as we approach this one year anniversary. So, Jason, thanks so much for being here and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Good to be on the program with you, Jason. I'm a repeat offender. I think this is the third time I've appeared on the zombie apocalypse. And I don't know if that means I'm like going to win a prize at the end of today's talk, but good to be on again. All right. Awesome. I think, yeah, I have one other interviewee who has been, I think, five times. Oh, so we got to okay. get you up to the five right. spot, but we're, we're, we're making progress. So I guess, you know, just to start us off here, um, you know, how do you assess the state of the January 6th prosecutions nearly one year later? So there have been now over 700 um, individuals charged for crimes related to the January 6th insurrection. You know, of those 700, um, you have a, a handful, really like two hands worth full of uh, really serious charges of individuals um, who've been charged with conspiracy um, and they are from groups uh, associated with the, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, and the Oath Keepers. You know, they, they are in an ongoing process, those particularly um, more um, challenging cases where the, the stricter charges are, are moving forward. Um, there have been a handful of successful prosecutions or pleads. Um, you know, I think the most I've seen is someone getting a little over um, five, six years in that time period. Of course, um, the so-called QAnon shaman. Um, who, who dressed in um, outrageous garb. Um, he um, got a little over five years if memory serves. So we're, we're seeing uh, some prosecutions, successful ones. We're seeing some, some plea bargains. And um, I, I think it's actually going fairly well. Um, you know, no one's been charged with terrorism because there is no 
um, domestic terrorism law that would allow for these types of individuals to be prosecuted as terrorists if they were belonging to you know formalized groups that are sanctioned by the US government like ISIS or Al Qaeda of course they could have faced terrorism charges but not this set of, of actors you know it was um, a mix of, of individuals who obviously convened um, in Washington DC on January 6 at the the beckoning of, of President Trump and I wrote a piece for War on the Rocks that examined at that time a little over 400 people that were going through the, the prosecution process. And of those 400, me and my, my co-writer, um, Nathaniel Rosenblatt, talk about the diversity of individuals there. You know, you, you did have those individuals, of course, who were um, trying to do significant harm, but you had a lot of hanger-ons as well. Um, people who, who were there kind of just on the, the coattails of of, of the crazy, if, if you let's call it that, the coattails of crazy. Um, and, and and they aren't necessarily like the hardcore insurrectionists. So you, you had that mix of individuals. And those individuals, I think, by and large, have been ignored, you know, maybe some misdemeanors and low level kinds of charges pressed against. And I think that's appropriate. Um, I, I really am kind of um, still kind of waiting to see if we get a, a major prosecution that puts somebody behind bars for like a decade or more. And to me, that will be the true barometer of success. And it also, I think, could present a true uh, deterrent to individuals who may be contemplating something like this in the future. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm of the same mind with you, you know, I want everybody who was involved to get prosecuted. But again, you know, someone who just kind of wandered in, looked around the halls and walked out and didn't engage in violence or anything, even though they were pretty you know, adjacent to violence, yeah. you know, um, you know, I, I'm with you, you know, I, I don't, it's not like give them a pass, but you know, you, you don't need five years federal prison for that. I get that. Yeah, but you know, excessive. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing though, that I do see at this point that's missing is the plotters. And, you know, we'll, we'll get to the president and his inner circle, but even, you know, the one step up, the kind of Alex Jones is the Steve Bannons, who I know, you know, he's got the contempt charge, but, you know, it does seem like so far, unless I'm mistaken, nobody who really put this together and was really the money and the organizational kind of might behind it has been prosecuted with serious charges. And, and it always, it kind of seems like, you know, the, you know the, the war on drugs, right? It's all the guys on the street corners going, but not the kingpins. And I'm just wondering if you see it that way. Uh, I think that's an excellent point, Jason, you're making. And I, I will say, perhaps there's more that we'll see on this front. Um, I wouldn't exclude the possibility that we'll see some of the more um, important individuals who are behind the organization and the financing that allowed for the travel of a lot of very dangerous individuals to go to Washington, D.C. to actually be prosecuted, or those individuals like Jones who were you know, spouting things that were inciting violence. Uh, there, there are individuals there. And putting him aside, though, um, he is like actually facing so many different charges and prosecutions that he, he's going to be behind bars somewhere or he's going to be bankrupt at some point, I think, in the near future with all the stuff going on with the Sandy Hooks uh, school related um, charges he's been facing. And um, I, I think he's his his pocketbook is going to be really light in, in the future. But you're right. Like the brains behind this aren't necessarily the, the individuals who have been essentially um, prosecuted or in that process of being prosecuted. And, and those individuals who are the, the money people behind it and the individuals who dealt with the logistics and travel arrangements, I think, are, are the most important people to take a look at. And if you don't actually try to go after those individuals, that allows them to remain 
a, an important piece on the chessboard that needs to be potentially removed, but because they're on that chessboard still, they still can actually fund things and organize things in a way that can incite Americans to, to do harm. And I think that's particularly important because I, I don't know if you saw this, Jason, there was a, a recent University of Maryland and Washington Post study conducted that said in this study, in this survey, that 34% of individuals who were surveyed said political violence is a cool thing to pursue um, against the government. And, and given the fact that you have the individuals who are putting forward incendiary rhetoric like Jones or are like Ali Alexander, you know, essentially financing things that allow for people to, to do harm. Um, the fact that they're still on the streets is extremely problematic when you actually think about um, the polarization in America today and the tenor um, of, of Americans thinking that violence is uh, an appropriate outlet to, to change as opposed to change through the ballot box, right? So I, I think this is uh, the Achilles heel um, as I think about the actual January 6th insurrection and, and where there are things lacking. Um, and that's not even like talking about the, the president's inner circle that may have enabled things, right? Like Steve Bannon, um, you know, who has that contempt of Congress charge, which is actually an important charge. And I'm glad that they levied it against him. Um, but you know, are there other individuals in that inner circle that we can learn about who could be potentially charged with some kind of crime for, uh, you know, inspiring or um, facilitating, that's the, right, even the better word here, facilitating the actions of the 6th of January. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of people from what I, you know, what I gather kind of in my, my reading and kind of listening to, to other experts like yourself is that there seems to be a pretty big impatience with Garland and the Justice Department. But a kind of contrarian take on that is, look, they're letting the January 6th committee do the investigative work. The, the committee, you know, I've read various things about whether they should actually recommend criminal prosecutions or just put out the report and, you know, without any recommendations and let the DOJ, you know, just take it from there. But that in some sense, they're just letting the January 6th committee play itself out and they're preparing them to take that and then, you know, go for, you know, maybe higher level prosecutions. Then there's other people who say, well, that doesn't make any sense. They should be doing their own full investigation and grand juries at the same time. And they're kind of dropping the ball. I'm curious how you see, you know, where, where you come down on that. Do you think, you know, Garland and the DOJ is getting ready to step up at this higher level or are they being a little too, you know, dragging their feet? So I, I think they're moving at in an appropriate pace, provided they are actually moving um, towards something as it relates to the financial and logistical challenges related to this particular uh, case, right? So um, these are really complex cases relative to, say, individuals who we have, you know, video evidence of um, walking through the Capitol building and, you know, engaging in um, fisticuffs and fighting against Capitol Police officers, all that is documented video proof that Department of Justice can actually utilize for a court case. You know, the, following the money component of this is, is trickier, right? Um, and I think it is a more complex legal case for them to, to bring forward. And I imagine part of this could be is trying to make sure that they are building the very strongest case they can against uh, particular individuals who may have been involved in, in the financial or organizational related components of this. Um, and they may come you know, to a point where they actually can't pursue something legally because they just don't have enough facts. And perhaps in the context of, of you know, fact uh, finding, 
um, they, they could have hit, you know, walls. Um, they're trying to, to go around those walls, think creatively about trying to get to the, the truth as best they can with information that can be introduced in court that can allow for prosecution. Because the last thing you want to do is actually go through a prosecution and actually lose the case. And the individual becomes even more of a martyr within the movement, too. So uh, my, my mind is DOJ is probably pursuing something kind of behind the scenes, and they're trying to gather the facts as best they can to pursue actual cases against individuals who may have financed these things and knew that they were trying to actually finance something that could lead to, lead to some kind of bloodletting. Um, and, and at the same time, I think the January 6th committee is probably doing the same thing. And whether or not they're comparing notes to me is really the, the, the grand question here. Um, and, and whether or not there are things that the January 6th committee actually finds that could allow for potential prosecution that the Department of Justice may not have actually identified themselves. And they have some really good um, investigators on the January 6th committee. I mean, they just hired somebody who was part of a group called um, Chanalysis that actually did the forensic examination to show that there was a, a French national who, um, you know, was essentially um, sending Bitcoin to organizers of the 6th of January event um, insurrection. People like Nick Fuentes, I think he received up to like 13 Bitcoin, for instance, was like at that time was equivalent of $250,000. They actually took an expert from Chanalysis who was doing this investigation that actually published the findings in, in the spring about this transfer of Bitcoin to Nick Fuentes, an organizer of the 6th of January event, and actually have her working on the committee. So you have those kinds of experts on the committee now who actually have perhaps skill sets that are even perhaps stronger than the Department of Justice may have in certain areas of uh, financial investigations that could allow for the 6th of January committee to actually provide um, some really interesting, I think, details that Department of Justice could potentially tap into. Um, so I, I see it. I see it as a, a you have to be patient with prosecutions and, and as someone who was in the government for a long time who's observed terrorists being prosecuted. These things can take years um, before somebody is actually brought to justice. So I, I would caution people um, and, and actually plead um, for people to be patient as they can, because I, I have no doubt there'll be more prosecutions on the horizon. And if they're not, I think it's not because for the lack of willpower, but perhaps because they just don't have all the facts that they could utilize to actually bring forward a successful prosecution. Because the last thing we would all want to summarize everything I've said is create a new martyr within this movement who can energize um, a, a base that can do harm to American democracy. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And that's encouraging the, the facts about them, you know, hiring these analysts. Um, you know, that maybe leads into my next question, kind of two parts, which is, I know you said, obviously, be patient and all that. And I, I, I'm really, I'm trying hard to, to be patient. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard it to is be hard. patient. I know. It is hard. Yeah, well, well I, Congress, a place yeah. where I worked, for instance, I worked in Congress in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And, and seeing that, that beautiful building and the people who worked so hard to actually make the laws be penetrated by um, hooligans and insurrectionists is, is really hard to be yeah. patient, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I get it. I get yeah. your impatience. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it, it is understandable for people who care about the rule of law. Um, uh, as we both do. So I guess the two part question, though, is one is, do you think most of the high level cases will be prosecuted this year? So I get it that things take long, but it seems like two years, you know, by the end of this year, that's two years. It seems to me that if it's not going to happen within two years, it's probably not going to happen. But I, I think, think so. 
Yeah, so that you you concur I agree, with that. I agree. Yeah, I think you know right. this. You know, if we don't see you know uh, new um, cases introduced by the end of of twenty twenty two, I'd I'd be really surprised if we actually. Right you know, see those cases move, move forward. Um, you know, there could be some sealed indictments and things like that, that we're completely un, uh, unaware of as well. Right. So, right. um, you know, there, there are those types of processes that do take a, a little longer, but yeah, two years in at that point, um, you start wondering about, you know, the, the, the process itself. And that begs too many questions, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so this is the pivotal year in my, in my framing then, because, you know, I, I think if Trump and his cronies do not get federal indictments, the rule of law in America is pretty much a joke. And, and, and I just want to get your thoughts on this, but to tee it up here is that, you know, the way I like to think about this, if we were watching this stuff play out in a, one of our allies in Germany or France or UK, and let's see what we see. We see a president of, again, Germany, France, lying about an election for months, ginning people up, saying it was stolen getting on the phone with people and basically shaking them down for votes. You know, the Georgia Raffensperger saying, find me, you know, where's those 18,000 votes? You know, going through having memos, you've seen the PowerPoints of, you know, how we're going to overturn the election, fomenting an insurrection that leads to violence and, a, you know, and a ransacking of the Capitol and people dead and, you know, hundreds of officers assaulted. And it's a year later, two years later, and the perpetrators who did this in full, you know, plain sight, do not get indicted. What does that say about the rule of law? And I guess, you know, the final question, do you think Trump and his inner circle are going to be indicted? So I guess it depends on how we define inner circle. You know, could it be individuals linked to, to the president in some manner that that could end up being indicted in, in some fashion or, or form? Um, and and who, who could that be? Um, would they be people that were literally sitting in the White House or are they outside the White House and have some kind of relationship with, with the president? So, you know, to me, I think it's probably more likely you would see um, individuals that may be in some form associated with the president in the past, um, but not necessarily individuals within sort of the inner sanctum of the White House who are perhaps uh, likely to be indicted and prosecuted. So I think I think the 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 if I were to assess the situation as it exists right now, um, you know, for like someone like Meadows or or President Trump, unless there's something out there that is really um, stark and, and it just cannot be ignored um, as a piece of evidence that we're just unaware of right now, I would put that percentage chance of being quite low. I would say probably under 5% chance of seeing an indictment like that um, because I, I just not sure that there is the, the gumption and in the stomach within the Biden administration to, to pursue this. And, and you even saw, and I, I say this because you saw how reticent Biden was when um, the January 6th committee was considering a, a contempt charge for, for Bannon. He kind of said, you know, let's not actually pursue a prosecution. I think he was almost plainly said that, right? So I, I just don't see them having the, the energy to, to do that for a couple of reasons. I think if they were to do that, I think the president perhaps and his inner circle have made some kind of determination that it could actually tank the, the chances of actually pursuing other policy initiatives that they find are, are so vitally important to the administration um, in that uh, the Republicans in the Senate and in the House could try to sidetrack those initiatives, particularly in the lead up to the midterm elections, which there is a very good chance that the House and Senate could flip 
um, and they want to pursue as many other policy initiatives to pass through the, the Senate and House as quickly as possible before that um, possibility actually manifests. So I, I see this also as part of a, a, a political maneuver, I think, by the Biden administration. I, I think um, that is part of the reason why we may not see indictments, aside from the the possibility of those facts may not exist for the allowance of those pr uh, pursuits to occur, um, or if they, you know, facts exist, um, they're going to be hidden and swept under the the carpet, and we'll never see the light of, of day to allow for those prosecutions. And then, thirdly, I'll say um, that I think there is a, a concern also that if you were to say indict President Trump for the activities related to the sixth of January. That, that actually puts him on the stage again um, in a way that he's not really on the stage anymore. I, I kind of see him honestly as being a, really irrelevant now. Um, he's trying to make inroads. He's trying to create his old social media network. And um, people people kind of hate him even now on the on the radical right for not being crazy enough. We see kind of his, you know, his take on vaccines. Right. And and all the the fire and brimstone he got because of that. Alex Jones saying he can't support him anymore. Um, but if he's actually indicted, um, I actually could see a scenario where some of these militia groups and the Alex Joneses of the world, they may rally around Trump um, as opposed to rally around the flag. Right. So I, I think the Biden team may see that um, as something uh, of, uh, of a concern and perhaps another reason why they're not indicting him. Um, I think this is like a bit three dimensional chess and I might be overthinking things, Jason. But that's why I think I think it's unlikely we're going to see those things happen. Well, the, here's, this is good because this is where maybe our views might diverge a little here because I think, I, I don't think that your assessment is, is, is incorrect and obviously we'll, we'll see in this next 12 months how that plays out, but it just so, it's so dispiriting to me to think that a criminal of the order of Trump who just blatantly has, you know, fomented an insurrection and, and we'll get to it, you know, the definitions here, but in my view, absolutely 100%. It was a failed coup attempt, right? And, and that he could just be a free man playing golf. It's just, it just, it just makes a mockery of the rule of law. And I, I you know, as someone, you know, I'm in my fifties here, I've seen America, I've seen, you know, Nixon resigns, and then all the people he's associated with get pardoned. Then, you know, Reagan and Bush, you know, sell weapons to Iranians and illegally arm the Contras and they all get pardoned and a couple people do some small time, but essentially people get pardoned. Then we get, you know, Bush lies us into Iraq and nobody does any time. There's war crimes under that administration. And now it's just a full out fascist insurrection. And it's like, oh, we don't have the stomach to prosecute it. I mean, what what is a society at that point? And what's the trajectory if we can't take this stuff seriously? So that's a that's a really hard question. And I, I think it's the trajectory the United States has been on for for quite some time. Right. And everything you just described up until this point um, of, of, you know, senior political elitists um, not facing the, the music, as it were, in any shape, fame, uh, fashion or form. I, I think that's kind of, you know, has been the political um, part of U.S. for for some time in the two-party system, and I, I think it, it comes down to that two-party system where you, you have elites who, on both sides of of the political ledger, have unfortunately, I think, protected one another. Um, and I think it's a part a part of this preservation of the the system, as it were. Um, and, and the question becomes, you know, can that system be broke in some way? 
um, to kind of unchain the U.S. from its past in the context of allowing elites to to go um, essentially unpunished. And I think that's that's the question to me. Can can the United States get to that point? Are are there going to be future politicians who are, are willing to, to break the system and free the system of this elitism that that exudes um, throughout it and has exuded throughout for for a very long time, right? So I think everything the points you just made, Jason, I, I think um, argue um, for why we're not going to see anything. Um, and, and then ultimately, what does it mean? I think what it means is, will the American population not be apathetic um, and actually try to create real f- reform um, within the political system that somehow breaks this logjam of the two-party system? Um, I think that's, that is at the crux of, of the issue. Um, and I actually do not think Americans are going to be less apathetic. I think they're going to be more apathetic. I think they're going to continue to drink from the fountain of social media um, and continue to live in their bubbles and become uh, politically uninterested. And those who are politically interested are politically interested for the wrong reasons, because they're, um, you know, scooping up fake news and false information. And I think that's why it's a really dangerous situation still here in 2022, because those who are most politically animated are those that are motivated by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Mm -hmm. So, or Alex Jones. And I think that's why we're heading still on a, a really dangerous uh, direction here in the United States. Yeah, well, this is this is turning out to be a cheery conversation. <laughs> yeah, it, people think like there were like nothing happened after the sixth of January, and we didn't have any major terrorism attacks either, right wing, left wing, Islamist inspired, and everybody thinks like people are thinking, oh, it's going to be fine in twenty twenty two, and I actually. I don't think that. I've written a couple of pieces for the Washington Post and Los Angeles Times saying that essentially I do think um, radical right wing actors um, are, are still hell bent on carrying out political acts of violence. And we need to be continue to be vigilant about um, those types of individuals because they, they haven't gone away. They're still here um, and they still have um, malintent. Yeah. And I, I guess coming back to the, the previous question is, you know, this stomach for prosecuting the, the the kingpins, the elites, the fact that you're saying you think it's absent, I mean, that emboldens them, right? I mean, if there's anything, you know, I, I wrote an article in September 2020 that basically predicted almost to the letter everything that Trump would do from the election onward. And it's not because I'm particularly that smart. I don't, I just know history. I can see these lessons in its textbook, right? And like, if you have a proto-fascist anti-democratic movement that you know basically you know carries out an attempted coup and, they, the, and the leaders don't get punished, everything history tells us is then that's a warm-up act for the next one, right? Because like, hey, we got away with this, let's try again. And so you you know, and and why would the the, the citizenry not be apathetic if the people in charge aren't taking it seriously, right? I mean, that's the signal, right? If Biden and Garland take this stuff seriously and indict the former president, then maybe people say, wow, there's something here. And it would be bipartisan. They would have Liz Cheney. We got a right wing, right wing, you know, super right winger on our team. And I just, it's just <laughs> a amazing. Neocon. Yeah, she's a yeah, neocon. Right. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, having a, a, a Liz Cheney by your side saying, you know, she would stand with Garland and Biden if they indicted Trump, no doubt. And so it would be bipartisan. And they, they, they can't take this opportunity. I'm going, what what is the red line? There? If an attempted coup is not the red line, what's the red line? 
Well, I just know from experience in foreign policy that there, there really are no red lines. And I think we have an extension now in, in the foreign policy world to the domestic world that there, there are no red lines. These are, these are lines that are dotted and constantly shifting. Um, and I think there is that reluctance that, that continues to exist to, to create that red line. Um, and I, I think there are some analogies here in terms of not per pursuing things um, to what we saw in the mid-1990s, where you had the FBI um, carry out some pretty aggressive um, actions against individuals in places like Ruby Ridge and Waco that went really poorly in the context of the, the government um, you know, creating an atmosphere in which um, radical right-wingers could actually glom onto. And I think that same kind of response that we saw in the mid-1990s that led to a, a significant rise in militia movements um, and culminated in the Oklahoma City attack a couple of years after Waco um, in Ruby Ridge um, is the kind of thing that I think the federal government is really worried about. If you like I, to go back to my previous answer, if you actually indict and prosecute Trump, does that inspire these individuals to actually do something? And I think that's why you see this hesitancy that, um, you know, if you over overreach from their perspective and, and actually do that prosecution, I think they actually see it as an situation which could create more uh, catastrophe and fire. But I see your, your, your point, though. Um, I, you know, I think there is a valid argument, Jason, that it could create um, a scenario where people become enabled and they feel like I can do something and, and there won't be um, consequences. I would just say, though, if you're a regular person who actually tries to do that, like we saw with the insurrection where we have 700 prosecutions so far, you know, there is a good chance you're going to spend um, some time behind bars. But those time behind bars, frankly, has been pretty minimal. You know, five, six years. If this is like somebody who is an American who tried to provide 10 bucks to ISIS, and this is a point I've made time and again on other podcasts, they get 20 years. Um, so there is this, you know, I, I think we're missing things also in the legal system that allow for us to, to, to pursue things in, in the way that we could to make this even more of a deterrent. But I think the elitists, like they have always have in, in the United States, and Trump is an elitist. Anybody who says he's not an elitist, I think, is, is, is incorrect here. He tries to pretend like he's a, a populist, but he acts like an elitist, and he's being treated like an elitist. So in that sense, um, I, I think we're not going to see those indictments and prosecutions. So I know that's probably like a super yeah. confusing response, but um, this is not a, a straightforward issue or matter. Yeah, no, no. I mean, and I want obviously I want your candid opinion. It's a it's disappointing. So I hope you're wrong about that. one. I hope but, I'm uh, always wrong on yeah, stuff. Right, actually, right, right, I, I hope right. all my articles I've written this year about right. in the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times where I'm talking about like, hmm. you know, we, we have to remain vigilant against right wing extremism. It's not a done deal. You know, the January 6th is just but a moment in time and there's more moments in time we need to be vigilant about. I hope I'm wrong about all that. Um, and my analysis is, is incorrect. Um, yeah, so yeah. I'm, I, I like to be wrong, actually. I yeah. just, in this case, uh, I don't think I'm going to be wrong. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's just get, you know, I've been using the term attempted coup and we've been using the term insurrection. I just want to get, you know, real quickly get your take. Do you think what happened in 2020 into 2021 was an attempted coup? And do you think that the right wing in America is setting the stage for a repeat performance in 2024. Oh, wow. So on this question, um, you know, I've, I've, I've been going back and forth in my mind on this. Um, you know, even people like the FBI director, um, Ray, he has called it 
um, an act of terrorism, right? And even um, other individuals within the administration, like uh, Josh Geltzer, for instance, who's a senior ranking member in the White House um, in charge of homeland security related issues and domestic terrorism, he has called it terrorism. Um, and then you have others like uh, Mayorkas and homeland security who's been a little reticent to call it terrorism. Um, so even within the Biden administration, you have people calling it an act of terrorism, but yet somehow nobody who did it was a terrorist and prosecuted for terrorism. But that's another story, right? Um, I, I kind of, you know, I, I still think of it as personally as as a, a failed insurrection. Um, I want to see what the January 6th committee comes up with, with the level of um, you know, interaction with senior administration officials before I perhaps am comfortable calling it a coup. I don't want to get in front of the, the January 6th committee. I want to see where they end up on, on this terminology. Are they going to call it a coup? Are they going to call it insurrection? Are they call it an event of, of terrorism? Really, I mean, in the end, it really doesn't matter. Um, all of those insurrection, coup, terrorist activity, all that is extremely dangerous. Um, and I think we should let the facts fall um, where they, they may, and hopefully the committee will provide us more information that can enlighten us on, on the, the best way to, to term this. But right now, I'm kind of still sticking with insurrection, although I could see an argument for terrorism like Ray and, and Geltzer have made, because it was a political act. Um, there was absolutely violence there. And that political act of violence is part of effort to create an atmosphere of, of fear, um, right? And I, I think that is kind of the quintessential definition of, of terrorism amongst the academic community. So I think there is that good argument for that as well. I just, I find it peculiar to be able to call it an act of terrorism, but nobody's being prosecuted for, for terrorism. So that's yeah. why I kind of go back to insurrection. At least that's mentally where I am right now for what it's worth. But Jason, I'd like, like to hear your, your thoughts on, on why you think it's a, a coup versus an insurrection. Well, yeah, I, I, I think, I think the, the reasons I would, would lay that out is that you had, and again, we got, you know, we got the Jeffrey Clark, we got the Eastman, we got the Steve Bannon, and they had a pretty, you know, well thought out script of kind of decision trees. Okay, if this fails, we try this. If this fails, we try this. And it was a recipe for how to overturn what they knew was a free and fair election. So we had everyone from the president and his inner circle, not necessarily every individual, but a large portion of them knowing the election was free and fair, and then systematically for months trying to figure out how to overturn it, leading up to literally trying to get the vice president not to certify the electors. And they had, you know, people, they wanted to go back to some of the states and get them to send new, you know, um, slates of electors that would be, you know, by the legislature. I mean, they had a pretty detailed plan. Now, again, there would have been court challenges and other things. But, you know, as you know, the Constitution is pretty weak on a lot of stuff that we think of as the democratic. And there's a lot of wiggle room in the Constitution for doing some pretty heavy handed authoritarian stuff if someone was to push it in that direction. So, you know, when you have an intentional multi month, you know, multi tiered effort to overturn a free and fair election, I guess I don't know what else to call it besides a coup. I'm, I'm not going to debate it. I think it's semantics, insurrection, coup, terrorism, right. all that's fair. Again, so, so, so really important. And you make some excellent points about sort of the, the, the brain trust behind this. Um, you know, this has long been something um, Bannon, for instance, has has embraced. Um, and, you know, it is part of that 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 blueprint, as it were, that people like Bannon have have put together. Mm -hmm. you know, he's a he's a pretty sly guy. 
Um, and and you, you can't underestimate people like that. Not not an idiot, unfortunately. No, um, no. And, and way more brain power behind him than, for instance, President Trump, right? And Indeed. I think President Trump it doesn't really. I don't think he understood that. You know, his strings were being pulled also. I think by a lot of these individuals. And, and, and they played up to his ego. And as so long as you play up to his ego, um, some of your you know, crazy ideas are things that he might be willing to accept because you, you, you know, essentially stroke the ego. Um, and these other more nefarious things that he probably doesn't even understand can actually get through you know, his, his filtering, right? Um, yeah. So his filtering is pretty simple, like pay homage, um, and then he, he loves you. And I think yeah. that's why that, that Bannon-Trump relationship is actually really... Um, potentially problematic and it remains problematic it does it does indeed well just just to follow up again going you know looking forward to 2024 you know there's a whole slew of things that the the gop is doing at the state level but also you know there's some talk you know at the congressional level of what things you know that we get these tweets every now and then about a backdoor meeting where they're like hey in 2024 we can do x y and z and basically it's just like they realized what failed in 2020 And if Trump was to run again or another right winger and lose, that they feel it seems pretty confident that they could run the same playbook, but with some tweaks and be successful. And I wonder, you know, how you're feeling about than the next presidential election. Wow, I'm, I'm not even to the midterm 2022 election <laughs> yet, Jason, because I, I have okay. really significant concerns about 2022. Um, and I think so does um, senior people in the Biden administration who are charged with keeping um, America safe from cyber intrusion and disinformation and misinformation being spread by foreign actors to continue to polarize American society. Because we're, we're, we're seeing in one of my jobs I work on, um, you know, at the, the Sufan Center, where, you know, it's a, a nonprofit think tank, we've done a number of reports about Russian and Chinese disinformation efforts to try to amplify some of these messages, um, anti-vax messages, anti-mask messages, um, to really continue to polarize um, the U.S. population. So I'm I'm actually really worried in this year about um, potential um, election related violence um, happening. Um, I'm really concerned about election security in 2022 and how that could shape up. But if you fast forward to 2024, um, I think I take those concerns and they actually become even more pronounced because so much more is at stake. And I do think there are a lot of things in, in the playbook, as, as you described, that could be tweaked that allow for um, even more tension and, and more problems in, in the future. Um, and I think, you know, having like the right people do some of the things that the last administration was trying to do, for instance, that that weren't particularly sophisticated and, and quite frankly, um, you know, not even, you know, sophisticated criminally um like the, the whole stuff of georgia like find me those votes and things like that that wasn't particularly well nuanced right so um i i think we could see things that are perhaps more nuanced and, and subtle that could be more dangerous to try to upend an election i think we're going to live in in america now where um i would be surprised in any presidential election we don't see some level of turmoil uh where we see people saying that you know, there is some kind of, you know, different uh, conclusion um, than was actually the real conclusion. So I think every election from this point forward is going to be steeped in mis and disinformation and, and, and big lies, unfortunately. And then how does uh, the democracy hold up? Um, how strong are the institutions? You know, we saw Georgia, you know, the Republican, um, you know, contingent there really pushed back. Um, will that happen in the future? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that question. 
um, I think that's the sort of the great unknown um, is like how how stiff will people's backs be when it comes to some of these fake narratives and, and lies that um, senior politicians are going to pursue if they lose the election. And yep. I, I think uh, I think a lot of these people lost a lot by pushing back also um, politically. Yep. Um, and we see um, them being primaried um, against and. Um, they could very well lose because they they took a stand, right? People like like uh, uh, Cheney, for instance, and others um, have a lot to to lose. Um, and if you lose those, I don't want to call them moderate um, because they're not really moderate, but normal um, Republicans who actually um, care about the the rule of law, um, care about facts. And if you lose them, then um, we're in a, a world of hurt. If we have essentially a you know a Democratic Party. Um, and then what the equivalent of like a QAnon party left. Yeah, well, that certainly seems the direction it's heading. I mean, we're already probably two thirds there. And then, um, you know, if Cheney loses you know, her seat and all these state elected officials either don't run or lose their seats to the to the MAGA crowd, um, you know, 2024 could be exactly like you said, it could be Republicans versus I mean, sorry, Democrats versus QAnon. And that's a scary world to uh, be in. But it's certainly, again, if, we're, if I was reading tea leaves, it seems like that's the trajectory. It is. And if you look at like Ron Watkins, the guy who's likely the person behind Q, right? Um, and he's really become very active politically and, you know, is, is buddies with people like Gassar and, and others who just are, are in a different universe completely from one that is inhabited by facts. So um, if you have someone like Watkins, you know, continuing to, to influence people in, in the future within the Republican Party, that, that says a lot. And, yeah. and, and there's a lot of good studies by Media Matters about the number of, you know, QAnon adherents who are running for local and state and federal office. And they're at really all time highs, even higher than the, the, the 2020 election. So I, I'm very concerned, even though the so-called Q behind QAnon no longer posts on on you know 4chan or 8kun anymore um and it seems to be out of the the business of posting you know these these stupid riddles um it doesn't mean that the movement is dead i think it remains pretty robust and has a lot of influence within the republican party sadly yeah yeah well people kind of made fun of me when i said dispatch from the zombie apocalypse but sadly i'm getting the last laugh on that one um so uh moving on here um you know, maybe let's get back to kind of the, the legal stuff and, and maybe kind of wrap this up. And, and that is, you know, you know, you mentioned that there isn't this domestic terrorism law that these people can be charged under. And, and again, you, you made that great kind of comparison between, you know, you give ten dollars to ISIS and you get two decades and you can you know, assault a police officer in the Capitol and get significantly less. Um, and so do you think there are serious inadequacies in federal law for domestic terrorism that are need to be fixed, gaps filled? You know, where, where do you see the state of play and the legal architecture surrounding this type of, um, you know, this type of activity? Yeah. And I, I have written before about the, the need to have a, a domestic terrorism law, one that's extremely well calibrated because it could go sideways uh, very quickly, too, if it was, you know, constructed in a way that that wasn't um, done in a really uh, detailed and concerted fashion, one in which um, built in uh, 
privacy and civil liberties oversight protections. And I've talked about that before. Um, I would really want to have some oversight from the PCLOB, which is the Privacy Civil Liberties Oversight Board that could actually review how um, domestic charges were being levied. In the United States, you do have individuals charged with terrorism. They just happen to have to be associated with foreign-based groups. And obviously groups like the Oath Keepers and, and the Three Percenters, individuals who are part of those milieus who actually carry out politically motivated acts of violence, um, that meet the definition of terrorism because there is a domestic terrorism law. Um, there is domestic definition of uh, a definition of domestic terrorism in the U.S. Code, but there's no charges associated with, really with it unless somebody's a, a associated with a foreign-based actor or they use a weapon of mass destruction. Those are kind of the the exceptions to the rule. We have seen a couple cases in which um, there are terrorism enhancement. Um, related uh, requests made by the prosecution to, to go after some of the individuals who carried out some of the events related to the 6th of January to ensure that they actually get some more time. If that was done more um, and, and done more consistently across the board, it could potentially obviate the need of creating a new law. And I'd love to, to see how that pans out. But I just haven't seen the enhancement used enough to, to make me pretty comfortable with, with treating all forms of terrorism the same way. So I do think we have uh, imbalance in the United States where we treat a certain kind of terrorism perhaps more harshly than other forms of terrorism. And when we do that, I think we enable um, particularly on the right right wing actors to think that they're doing things in the name of patriotism when it really is terrorism, but the United States doesn't actually prosecute them for terrorism. And that leads to a pretty uh, big problem. And I think that problem is only going to get bigger. And what really worries me, Jason, is that we're not going to actually try to pass anything in the form of better laws to go after these subset of actors who are kind of skirting the law and getting around things in a circuitous route. Um, until something big happens, until we have another like Oklahoma City. And then the government, because it's always over-responsive, will over-respond and just put out the window privacy and civil liberty considerations because they want to act and show um, might in the face of a, a deadly attack. So my biggest fear is actually we don't consider these things in a serious manner until something really, really bad happens, where you have thousands of people killed um, in an Oklahoma City-like event, and then you have the overpivot, and the U.S. actually does things in a way that actually are going to be um, dangerous to privacy and civil liberties. And it's a really important debate to have, and really now Congress isn't having that debate, sadly, at all, because Congress is so you know broken and, and distracted. Um, you know, there, there's some bills have been introduced here and there, but I just don't see anything happening in, in this midterm election. And, and if the midterm election leads to uh, a split in government where Republicans control the, the House and Senate, which I think is a distinct possibility in the executive branch controls the, the uh, is controlled by the Democrats, obviously, from 22 to 2024, um, we're not going to see anything significant in this space happen. So then the question becomes, what can be done short of new laws? And there are things that government can do. Um, I don't know if you saw, Jason, for instance, the Department of Defense issued these new regulations to try to stamp out um, extremism um, within the, the military. And I think those kinds of things can be done. Um, but those are things you do on the margin and the periphery that aren't going to solve the problem from a systematic manner. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, you know, kind of trying to maybe wrap this up here, you know, we, we've painted a picture in this conversation of kind of, I think, slow walking to another bigger disaster. I mean, I really think if that's how I would encapsulate it, whether it's you know, again, hopefully we're, you know, it does never happens, but a major terrorist attack or another insurrection or new right wing and, you know, people being enabled by a lack of prosecution. I mean, 
nothing, nothing particularly that positive. And look, you know, I'm not here to cheer people up. We got to deal with reality. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's reality yeah, of reality. Yeah. Right. But Absolutely. I guess in, 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 in ending this, do you, you know, again, not to cheer us up or anything, but is there any pieces of this puzzle that we haven't touched on, or is there any kind of arc or narrative of looking forward that you want to provide given that you're really steeped in this stuff? So I, I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind as we move forward are touch points that can continue to polarize um, people to, to make them more extreme and to move them from an extremist worldview to a, a, a violent event. And, and I think in these spaces, we need to think about um, challenges that are present in the U.S. today. And I think those challenges uh, surround the issues of vaccines, um, COVID-19, masks, um, the ability of people to um, feel as if their grievances are being heard. Um, and, and that assortment of issues, I think, are going to be potential drivers of violence as we look into 2022 um, and uh, the years uh, ahead um, up until 2024. Um, and, and then how does um, the American government, how does the private sector, how does social media deal with these dangerous um, things that often do circulate in the online space to try to ensure that they don't actually have the residents that they could to create perhaps that next extremist who may be willing to move to, to violence. Um, I think that is the, the, the most important question for the whole of society to, to grapple with. And I think we as individuals all have a responsibility to act ourselves when we see this information online um, that is spreading um, disinformation narratives. Um, and I know it can lead to a lot of debate within academic circles, for instance. And to give you an example, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, obviously, you know, I'm wearing a, a, hat, a Twitter hat today. Um, you know, she, she lost her Twitter account, right? Um, her, her private one, because she was spreading disinformation regarding um, vaccines and the effectiveness of vaccines. And I think making decisions like that are hard decisions, but I think they're necessary decisions. And people who actually continue to watch our politicians speak out in ways that are, um, you know, essentially endorsing false information regarding the vaccine. You know, it's incumbent upon us to, to report those um, falsehoods so the social media entities can take action. Now, obviously, it's like someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene is very easy to, to track, right, um, in terms of her Twitter account. But there's so many people underneath of her who may be influencing four or five family members that we should be talking about um, as, as, you know, spreading disinformation and, and, and flagging that, that content. So um, I think it needs to be done, especially if it can do public health harm, which you know, counter vaccine narratives actually do, um, because it's been proven time and again that vaccines work um, and will ensure people don't have to go to the hospital if they get COVID-19, right? You know, so I think that is the most important thing we can do this year is to speak up on, on those kinds of issues through the, the power that we have. And we all have agency. Um, and if we're on social media, I know you're not Jason, but I am. Um, and I know some other professors here at the Institute are as well. Um, even people who aren't, you know, steeped in this stuff, like Professor Lewis, he's actually, I saw on his Twitter account, Jeffrey Lewis is like calling out disinformation all the time and, and, and actually, you know, flagging things for Twitter. Um, that's something simple we can do. Um, is it going to make everything better, a hunky dory, and we're going to all laugh and be happy and be bored. And, and, and that boredom means like things are safe again. I don't think so, but it actually can make some small difference. And maybe um, that's, that's all we can do at this point. No, fair enough. I mean, we, we all must be vigilant. 
And uh, to, we, we definitely take that. Well, I think we've set this up nicely. We have a lot of kind of trajectories that we've thought of and, and potential and, and, and mild predictions that we can come back maybe at the end of the year after yeah. the midterms and see how it all played out. And uh, hopefully we uh, we were both wrong and uh, things are a lot more cheery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to be wrong and people come back to this podcast and say that those Jasons, they, they were yeah. talking crazy and they were so wrong. And, yeah. and I would love to, to hear that. Um, yeah. And American, happened. American democracy is thriving That's and right. strong. The yeah. Party yeah. system is perfect. <laughs> and, and the, the world is hunky dory and, yeah, yeah. you know, extremism is dead. Yeah, that would be, that would be a, a great, great uh, thing to behold. <laughs> All right, Jason. Well, look, um, super, super enjoyed this conversation. Always Me too. great to get your perspectives and uh, thanks. Thanks again for joining us. Absolutely. Great to be here. Okay, everybody. Well, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with uh, Jason. Uh, always great to, to catch up with him, and I definitely want to follow up at the year's end and see how this all played out. And I just want to say before getting to the antidote for today that, you know, American democracy is in a bad, bad way, and I think this year is going to be pivotal. I think if we have some serious work, you know, being done and completed by the January 6th Commission, hand it off to the DOJ, and we see more, you know, activity there. I obviously want to see Trump and his inner circle prosecuted. Jason thinks that's a very low probability. We'll have to see how that plays out. Maybe at least some of the mid-level people or at least some of the people involved, you know, with the planning, you know, something of that nature. Obviously, the Democrats are going to make a push for some voting rights bills and from an, some election integrity bills. Again, those have an uphill battle. But I think really, you know, we have some big stuff going on. And then, of course, we have the midterms. I want to be clear that I do not think it's written in stone that Democrats are going to lose. They have a tough fight. There's gerrymandering. There's the crazy MAGA zombies who want to punish Democrats and burn the country down, who are going to be coming out in droves. But I'm not so sure that the economy won't be in pretty good shape and people will be generally happy with the Biden administration come November and, and it not be actually a relatively good night for Democrats. There's some really crazy GOP Senate candidates and some really good Democratic candidates. So look, it's going to be rough, but I, I hate the, you know, assuming it's going to go bad for the Democrats when we're almost a year out. Let's let's fight the fight and see where the chips fall, you know, in November of this year. But on to the antidote for today. It's just very simple. In the show notes, there are two articles that are linked um, that by Lawrence Tribe, the constitutional scholar, one from The Guardian and one from The New York Times. They really just lay out in very, very clear, concise terms the stakes here as we really you know, see our democracy falter, the things that need to be done and the seriousness. And again, Lawrence Tribe is a serious, serious constitutional scholar. He was considered for a Supreme Court spot many times, never obviously got that nomination, but he was considered for it. He's a no-joke scholar, and they're short, succinct articles. So I highly recommend you read them and then share them through every medium you have. Put them on all your social media. Put them on your LinkedIn account. Send them by email to people. Just let's make sure people here, the you know, the humans who are left in this country who are not under the zombie virus of lies and conspiracy, have their head in the game and understand the stakes. And these Lawrence Tribe articles, I think, are a great way to kind of set the stage. And look, I know everybody wants to rest. It's been a weary 
four, five, 10, 20 years, really since 9-11 and Bush. And, you know, and it's just been a rough couple decades. And remember, though, the fascists and the right wing extremists, they bank on our exhaustion. And that's when they swoop in and they take over. And so we just cannot afford to give up. That's the reality. And I think um, we just got to get our head in the game, do what we can. No one's saying everyone has to hit the front lines and, you know, and be, you know, a martyr, but at least to stay informed, you know, communicate with your, your circles, your family and your friends and your colleagues and make sure you're voting, doing your part to protect, you know, our fragile democracy here and the rule of law. So with that, everybody, again, I hope you uh, have a great start to the new year. You're happy and healthy. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with family, friends, colleagues, rate it, subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And with that, everybody, have a great one. Take care. See you soon.